Good morning, TLC. You ever seen a movie that just like stuck with you? Like you remember where you were when you saw it, how you felt, all that stuff? I, uh, I know one of the movies that sticks out for me uh, is the movie Jaws. Oh, Jaws is so awesome, right? And uh, I remember uh, the first time that I saw it, uh, I was at my grandparents' And I'm not sure if my, my mom's in here. She might be able to speak to this. I don't know if my grandparents asked if we could see it or if they just decided we're showing them this. Uh, but I watched it, and I was terrified, but also mesmerized by sharks. I love sharks so much. They're my favorite animal. I even love them so much. I have them on my shoes today. It's not a Nike sign. It's a shark. All right. I wore them on purpose today. I'm corny like that. Anyways, uh, I watched Jaws. I was terrified. In fact, uh, that night, it was made worse by the fact that all of my grandparents' beds in the house, I think all of them, all but one maybe, were water beds. And I was sleeping on a water bed. <laughs> so I was like dreaming of sharks in my water bed. Uh, and if you haven't slept on a water bed ever, like you should have that experience. Find one and do it. <laughs> Another movie that stands out is uh, Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. Now, I know that for some Star Wars loyalists, this is like this is the, the stain of the Star Wars saga or whatever. Okay, but hear me out. This is the first Star Wars movie that I was old enough to like go and see in the movies. You know, like get popcorn, see it. And there was a ton of lightsabers and like that's all that matters. Okay, so I thought it was awesome. If you don't think so, you can write me an email later. Um, I want you to turn to your neighbor and just share a movie, or if you're not a movie person, maybe it's a song or a book or something that when you, when you saw it, when you interacted with it, it stuck with you. Remember where you were, how you felt, all that stuff. I'm going to give you 15, 20 seconds. Go. All right, I'm going to pull it back. I'm going to pull it back. There's uh, one movie I didn't mention, one movie that, that stands out to me. It's a little more intense than, than Jaws and uh, Star Wars. Uh, it's a movie called Hotel Rwanda. Anybody seen the movie Hotel Rwanda yet? Tells the, uh, he is a great actor, yeah, Don Sheedle, or Sheedle, however you say it. Uh, the movie depicts the heroics of this hotel manager named Paul Rusesa Bagina, uh, I think is how you say it. And uh, Paul was a hotel manager when the Rwandan genocide broke out in 1994. And he sheltered, offered shelter, safety, and refuge to, to hundreds of people using his hotel, saving many, many lives. I remember watching it for the first time, and, and, it, and it stuck with me for several reasons. If you've seen the movie, there's one scene in particular I won't delve into, but if you've seen the movie, you probably know what scene I'm talking about. But I remember watching it, and, and for the first time in my memory, like from a mature-ish standpoint at least, I remember wrestling with just how awful and deceitful and violent humans can be. The Rwandan genocide in 1994 in just the span of three months claimed 800,000 lives. And I remember watching this movie, learning of some of the events that took place and just feeling like, how could these people be this bad, this deceitful, this awful, this violent? And I felt this urge in me to try and like distance myself from them. Like, I'm so glad I'm not them. I'm so glad I could never do that. This morning, we will look at the deepest, darkest moment in the life of King David. I think it's one of the deepest, darkest moments in all of scripture. And I think that our tendency will be as we grapple with the deceitfulness and the awfulness and the violence 
that humans like David are capable of, our, the urge within us will be to distance ourselves. I'm so glad that I'm not David. How could he do that? It's a totally valid, appropriate response. But I want to ask you, to urge you, I want to invite you this morning that as much as you can, at every corner, every turn, when you feel that urge within you, I want to ask, invite you to resist as best you can the urge to distance yourself from David. I recognize that that will be hard. I'm going to get to that a little later on, bring back Hotel Rwanda, the whole thing. But if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn now to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And as you do that, uh, we will have it on the screen. And b- before I read, just a quick catch up, all right? We're moving through First and Second Samuel, these different moments in the life of David. And as we zoom into this point in the narrative, David up to this point has, has been portrayed as a pretty good, pretty faithful leader. It seems like everywhere David turns, he sort of finds God's favor. But this moment in the narrative we're going to read this morning, everything changes. This is like the hinge point in the narrative. After this, David's life, David's rule, David's reign will look a lot more like Game of Thrones than like anything in the Bible, okay? Or what you think of the Bible. It it will be characterized by the deceptive violence that we will soon see demonstrated by King David. All right, so I'm gonna read a good chunk here of 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm reading from the ESV because that's the Bible I have and there's a couple of translation things I think are helpful. Don't need to get into that, but if you have an NIV and it's slightly different, that's all right. The ESV is on the screen here. It says this, in the spring of the year, The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people rag on David for this. It's not actually that bad. He's done it before. He's getting older. It's actually a common practice. He does a lot of things wrong, a lot of things wrong, but this isn't necessarily one of them. Then in verse two, it says this, it happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. I want to clarify something. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. He did not see a woman on her roof bathing. Two different things. Just want to clarify that. It says the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Real quick, just want to clarify. The Bible is saying Bathsheba had just finished her menstrual cycle. This is important for two reasons. The first reason is Bathsheba's bathing probably out of a religious ritual observance. She's supposed to be doing this. She's just finished her menstrual cycle. The second reason it's important is the narrator saying Bathsheba wasn't pregnant before all this happened. She just finished her menstrual cycle. If you don't know about that, ask your parents, okay? All right? says this in verse 5. She returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, the only words we get from Bathsheba here, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, And wash your feet. Quick thing, uh, not all the time, but some of the time in the Bible, feet is a euphemism. Trust me when I tell you, David just told Uriah, go home and have sex with your wife. Okay, don't ask any more questions. (laughs) 
Job, <laughs> sorry, I've lost my spot here. Wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slipped at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David that Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, this must have just cut at David. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to go to, er, and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today and also tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next and David invited them and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he said, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So Joab sends messengers to David, telling him what to tell David, that a bunch of people died, but also Uriah died. The messenger says it to David. Listen to what David says in verse 25. I want you to catch the coldness and callousness here from David. It says, verse 25, David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So before I attempt to unpack and teach this text, continue on in a narrative, I just want to give two quick disclaimers. The first disclaimer is this. I'm terrified of teaching this text. And not because I feel like I need to defend it, but because I know that in a church this size, there are bound to be several Uriahs. People who, because of the relationship to the people around them, their sin and their destruction, they've died all kinds of different deaths in their life. There are several Bathshebas, women in particular who have suffered immense loss due to the connection to the people around them, oftentimes men. And I also know there are several Davids in the room. People who walked in here this morning thinking, I've done this thing, I've said that thing, I've become that thing. And there's no way that the sin that I've done, the evil and the destruction that's followed me could, could ever be forgiven. I want you to know this morning, if that's you, that as I prepared for the message this week, you are not far from my mind. I've been praying for you, that God would guard your heart and that you would feel a sense of security along with an openness to what God wants to say and do this morning. That you would feel a, a sense of security and challenge that's made possible by God and God alone. The second disclaimer is this. I'm aware that 
this text and the events that take place in this text are difficult for anyone, but in particular for women. Specifically women who have a life experience that makes it far too easy for them to put themselves in Bathsheba's shoes. And I want you to know that as I've prepared for this message this week, you were not far from my mind. That I have been praying for you. That God would guard your heart and give you a sense of security and challenge. Bathsheba is not tossed aside nor forgotten by God. She's one of the five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, and neither are you forgotten. In the spirit of that, I want to just read one quote here from Joyce Baldwin. She's a scholar who wrote a commentary on First and Second Samuel. We've been using and reading her commentary throughout the series, and she says this, Every sensitive reader must also wonder what the whole episode looked like from the point of view of Bathsheba. She was the victim of David's lust, but the narrator deliberately omits her feelings from consideration in order to concentrate on David. Nevertheless, she suffered much. But the biblical narrator resisted any invitation to sidetrack. By treating Bathsheba with clinical objectivity, the writer cleverly conveys the self-centeredness of David's lust. She is the wife of another, and yet he seizes her. Such an action cannot be described as love, and the Bible does not use that term nor any other endearing word. Looked at from the divine standpoint, David's action has no redeeming features. Somebody asked me after second service, I want to clarify that. No redeeming features. What she means by that is oftentimes David does something that looks wrong, but the narrator explains, oh, here's why David was doing it. It's redeemed. This, not so much. Not at all. Now, we just read the text. And if you read the text closely, you'll start to see and recognize that there is not a lot that we can say about David and Bathsheba and the dynamics and the feelings that were at play in this whole situation because we are not given much. But here's the one thing I will say definitively this morning is that for anyone, and there have been people who try to focus in on Bathsheba and try to blame Bathsheba for this whole event, They've ignored several things. They've ignored the textual details of the text, which all point to David's guilt. Not only that, they've also ignored the culture of David's people, which would have placed guilt on David and David alone. And most importantly, as we'll see here in a second, they've ignored the most important thing, God's assessment of the situation through his prophet Nathan, which places blame on David's shoulders alone, squarely David. The text says that what David had done displeased the Lord. So, with that in mind, David was profoundly, deeply, unbelievably wrong. If we were to keep tabs, which I guess we are keeping tabs, the list of what David did wrong would look like this. David coveted Bathsheba, the wife of his neighbor, Uriah. Then David took, went sent for her and took her away from her home, knowing that her husband, Uriah, was away at war, fighting a, a war for King David. Then David committed adultery and he had sex with the wife of his neighbor, Uriah, a woman named Bathsheba. 
David then found out that Bathsheba was pregnant. He cooked up a plan. He sent for Uriah. He lied to him. He tried to get, convince him to have sex with his wife and so that he could sweep the whole thing under the rug as Uriah's child, which just assumed Bathsheba's silence and discrepancy here. And then after all that didn't work, David murdered Uriah. Now, yes, Uriah was killed by an Ammonite soldier or a sword, or arrow or something, but make no mistake, he was murdered by a letter that he carried, sent from his king, King David. And your total today, sir, will be one violation of your own rule to not have sex while you're at battle or at war. A, war, or a rule that somehow Uriah was able to obey when he was drunk, that David couldn't obey when he was sober. A violation of multiple Levitical laws all aimed at ritual cleanness, which were meant to direct everyday life. And then most importantly, a violation of four, you could make a case for five, but I'm giving David a discount here. Four violations of the 10 commandments. Of the 10 commandments, there's five aimed at how we're supposed to treat each other. Guess how many David broke? Four, you could make a case for five. Make no mistake, according to the law, David deserved death. Let's see what happens. A prophet is sent to him by the name of Nathan. In chapter 12, it says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the, rich, uh, to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now I want to pause and, and draw our attention to one word that kind of connects Nathan's little ditty that he tells David and the real life action and offense that David committed. It's this, there's one word that kind of overlaps. It's this word in your Bibles, it shows up as took. Or maybe in your Bibles, it says remove. It's this Hebrew word, yakahe. And it's, 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 a, it's a word that has different sort of versions and, and, and translations. And, and it's all geared at this flavor of taking, of seizing, of grasping. It's what the rich man does to the poor man. It's what David did to Bathsheba and to Uriah. But it's not the first time that we see it pop up. It's not the first time that we see this theme of taking pop up. It's not the first time we see this pattern of seeing and taking in the Bible. In fact, in many of the significant moments of failure, of, of humanity's failure in the Bible up to this point, we see it pop up. Just before David here in 1 Samuel 15 God confronts Saul for his disobedience and Saul blames the Israelite people and he says in chapter 15, but the people took of the spoil. It's what God is angry at Saul about. It's what Saul blames other people for doing. In 1 Samuel 10, the Israelites, they want a king so bad, they kind of take matters into their own hands a little bit and it says that they, they saw Saul and they took him from there. 
When the Israelite people entered the promised land in the book of Joshua, God told them some things not to take, right? This guy named Achan, he saw some goodies that he really wanted, and then he did it, and he confessed in Joshua 7, 21, and it says, then I coveted them and I took them. Before that, the Israelites are on Mount Sinai. They craft a, a, a calf out of gold and they start to disobediently worship this idol instead of obediently worshiping the God who had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And guess what it says in chapter 32, 3 of Exodus? All the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears. They brought them to Aaron. And guess what Aaron did? He took them and he made the golden calf. Before that, in Genesis 16, verse 3, a woman named Sarai and her husband Abram, they have her Tough time trusting God and God's timing. It says, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram. And wouldn't you know it, all the way at the very beginning, Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, guess what it says? Of Eve, she took of its fruit and ate. Chapter 11, verse 4 of 2 Samuel, what did David do? He sent messengers and took her. The taking displayed by David stands out for its repulsiveness. But make no mistake, David is continuing in a most unfortunate tradition of humans taking. See, taking is kind of humanity's thing. At least that's what the Bible seems to be trying to communicate. Like, we could just walk around with shirts that say taking, with a little trademark. It's our thing. And this is where I think the text invites us to see ourselves through the lens of David. Of rather than trying to distance ourselves from him, to see ourselves through him. Our desperate need for God's grace. Our deceitfulness, our awfulness, our violence. But I recognize that's a really hard thing. It's a hard thing for any of us. It's a really hard thing for some of us. I mentioned Hotel Rwanda, the Rwandan genocide. I wanted to fast forward years after I'd seen the movie Hotel Rwanda. I was in seminary. I was assigned a book called Mirror to the Church. It's by a, a guy by the name of Emmanuel Contengole. And uh, I didn't know this at the time when I watched Hotel Rwanda, but as I read the book, I learned that the Rwandan genocide is particularly troublesome for Christians. You see, Rwanda at the time of the genocide professed to be 85% Christian. 85%. Rwanda was the most Christianized nation on the continent of Africa, the world almost. Rwanda had been held up as the trophy of the, the African missionary movement of the evangelical West. And so Kantengole, who's a who is a Christian, deeply devoted to the body of Christ, the church flourishing, he writes this, that maybe the deepest tragedy of the Rwandan genocide is that Christianity didn't seem to make any difference. In fact, in fact churches became one of the prominent places of slaughtering. If you read and research, you'll find countless horrendous testimonies of brothers and sisters coming and gathering and singing together in worship on Easter Sunday of the resurrected Jesus for only four days later for them to grab their machetes and turn to kill one another. You'll read testimonies of Tutsis who 
were fleeing from their Hutu pursuers, just booking it for the church, the place that they thought they could find safety and sanctuary, and it was the place where death was waiting at the doorstep. And Contengole's book is powerful in not that it tries to assign blame or say this, it's this person's fault or it's that person's fault. His power is that he begs Christians around the world to look at the Rwandan genocide, to look at the, the Christian background of it and allow it to point the, the mirror back at us and say, what is going on? He asks questions like, How long will we go on with a mock Christianity that takes the tribalism of our world for granted? Or how long will we take consolation in numbers, buildings, and structures over the life-giving transformation that is to be had in the resurrected life of Jesus Christ? He says the latter would have prevented the genocide or at least helped stop it. But the former, separated from the the transformation, is what helped propel the genocide. He asked the reader, will you let this be a mirror to the church? And I think that our text this morning wants to function in a very similar way. That if we will let it to function as a mirror to our own sinfulness, our own violence, our own deceitfulness, and our desperate need for God's grace. Listen, I I know some of us, this is very hard. Some of us are like, get out of here, man. Like David took this different level. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't taken a life. You're right. But we, many of us, all of us, we've taken nonetheless. Some of us, we've taken a, a, a sport or a hobby or a relationship or something else and we've crafted it into an idol that we worship above all else. Some of us, we've taken the approval of others and what others think about us and we've laid it at the foundation of our lives. Others of us, we've taken that one more parlay. If you don't know what a parlay is, that's not for you. Or that one more drink, and everything changed. We've taken that extra click to that website. Or we've taken that connection on the dating app too far. Or we've taken our money. We've taken our job. We've taken our house. We've taken our life. We've taken our time. And we've said, God, this is mine. You can't have it. Just my Sunday mornings. David's story is a story of taking. David's story is humanity's story. David's story is our story. It's a story of taking. Listen to what world-renowned scholar Walter Brueggemann says about the whole thing. He says this, The writer has cut very, very deep into the strange web of foolishness, fear, and fidelity that comprises the human map. This narrative is more than we want to know about David and more than we can bear to understand about ourselves. We might wish the story about David could be untold. David's memory cannot be unwritten any more than our shared life with David can be undone. David's 
taking of Bathsheba, David's taking of the life of Uriah is a story of taking because it's a story of humanity and what we do. It's why when the Israelites pleaded and begged and asked for a king, Samuel warned them and said that the kings of this world will do what? They'll take. They will take and they will take some more because that's what humans do. But it's not what God does. Listen, as God responds through the prophet Nathan, he says this to to David. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives into your arms and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? God's like, I gave, I gave, I gave. And if that wasn't enough, David, I would have given you more. And yet still, David took. So God asks David, why? David, when will enough be enough? Why have you despised the word of the Lord? It's a different version of the same question that God asked Saul in 1 Samuel 15 when God rejected Saul for his disobedience. And luckily for David, his response was different. Luckily for David, he had the the wisdom, the clarity, whatever it was to see that he had sinned. And he confessed in chapter 12, verse 13, it says this, after God announces his judgment on David, it says this in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. How do we know David deserved death? Because it's what God spares him from. David deserved to die. Instead, David confessed his sin and God said, David, I will take away your sin. I will spare your life. And for some of us, this just outrageous This super clear picture of grace to the utmost degree is very difficult for us. We we feel maybe a little bit like the prophet Nathan did, maybe. Like, why would God do this? All that David did wrong and all David had to say was, I've sinned against the Lord and God's like, you know what? I'll take your sin away. I'll spare your life. And I think that, that for those of us who feel that way, it's okay that you feel that way. It reminds me of the prophet Jonah. God told Jonah to go to this horrendous group of people called the Ninevites. They were really sinful and told them to repent. And if they would repent, that God would relent and he would save them. And Jonah did it and the Ninevites repent. And when they repented, Jonah sat himself on a hill overlooking the city and prayed that God would smite the Ninevites. That God would not do what he said he would do. When God confronted him, he said to God, I knew you were who you say you are. A gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I think some of us find ourselves on the hill of Jonah when we think about this David story. And if that's you this morning, I'd like you to picture Jesus coming and sitting by your side and showing you his hands 
and showing you his feet and reminding you, I didn't just die for David. I died for you. I didn't just die for David. I died for you. In the life of David, we have this outrageous, ridiculous, nonsensical picture of grace. And it's a picture that comes to full fruition, to full clarity in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You see, through Jesus, he takes this tendency that we have that David had to take and he redeems it, he restores it, he atones for it, he forgives it, he makes life everlasting possible. And we see this reversal and this restoration and this redemption of our tendency to take so clearly and beautifully in the hours before Jesus' death in a prayer that he prayed in a garden called Gethsemane. Listen to what Jesus prayed hours before his death. It says in Luke 22, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus begs the Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. Jesus is like, listen, the only thing that I want to take is what you give, Father. I want what you want. It's a generational curse being broken. Through David's life and through our lives, we've said, Father, I'm taking this cup. Not your will, but mine be done. And Jesus, hours before his death, prayed to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done it's the reversal it's the restoration it's the redemption of a curse that finds itself not just in David not just all the way back to the Adam and Eve but to us in our lives today and it's a redemption and a restoration that's available to all through Jesus through his life death and resurrection as he said I am the way and the truth and the life So we're going to do what only we should do is respond and worship to that good news. And as we do that, I want to invite some people in the room who I think God just really wants to speak and, and do some work within you through the, through the text this morning. I, there's a group of people, I, just, I call them the Davids, who I think walked in, like I said, feeling like I've done this thing, I've said this thing, I've become this thing. There's no way that God would want to forgive me. And I want you to know that God took away David's sin. David confessed. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. And David, and God took away his sin and spared his life. And he wants to do the same thing for you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so if that's you this morning, if you just need to confess, if you need to repent to God, you need to come forward, you need to be prayed for, maybe you need to confess and repent to someone in the room, to the person sitting next to you. I don't know what it is, but I think that God wants to do that in the lives of some of the people that are in this room this morning. The second group of people I think God really is interested in engaging with this morning, I call them the Nathans. The people who, they like to stand in the gap and say, what what are you doing? These people need to be cared for. They, they They need to be respected. 
God, what are you doing forgiving a guy like David? I think the Nathans in the room probably have some people in their life that they need to offer forgiveness to. People who did something, said something, whatever it is, that they have a hard time believing that God could possibly love and forgive them the same way they have a hard time believing God could love and forgive David. If that's you this morning, I want to just encourage you, respond and worship, come forward, receive prayer. Maybe you need to, to speak with someone in the room. Maybe they've wronged you and you need, to, you need to give them forgiveness. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you that you came with this morning that you need to offer forgiveness to. I don't know what it is. I don't know who it is, but I think that God wants to move in those people in the lives this morning that are in the room. Let's respond and worship this morning to not a God who takes, but a God who gives who takes our deceitfulness, our awfulness, and redeems it and restores it, offers us love and grace and forgiveness. Let's respond in worship to him. Amen.